0: Welcome to the Connecting Place Podcast. Here is today's message. For those of you that are new here, my name is Joe Jr. And uh, I get to, to work with our students, among many other things, here at the church. That was my beautiful wife that was singing and um, we love working with students. And when I found out that I was gonna be speaking this this weekend, you know, one of the things that kind of inevitably, inevitably happens as my dad, uh, you know, takes a breather here and there is that it happens on similar days in the year. So a lot of times I speak in the summer or it's like right around New Year's. So I've done a lot of New Year's messages and I was just like asking God, what could I, what could I teach that would be a little bit different and encourage people in the same way? And uh, I had this whole other message, I and was, I was pitching it to my wife, and as wives often do, thank God for wives, she was like, That's okay. And I was like, Okay, okay. Um, um, we get it? And she was like, You know what? I, did, I feel like that's great. That's, a, that's an awesome message for some time. What about the message you preached at camp? And uh, for those of you that didn't know, uh, we, we went to Seneca Hills, Pennsylvania about a month and a half ago. And We did fall camp. We should have called it winter camp because on the last night, about six inches of snow, all that white stuff fell, and we had these 15 passenger vans that we were trying to drive up steep inclines, and we had to, we got kind of snowed in. But you know what the cool thing is about camp? Uh, you just you're not going anywhere. You know, for about two two days or so, you're just kind of there. And uh, we had 77 students that came, which is incredible. Over 20 leaders came, and we were just stuck together and had such an incredible time. And I just after talking to students and leaders just life-changing uh, things happen, and, and this is a message I, I kind of am expanding from the message that I taught the last night of camp, and uh, we'll call it mountains, and uh, here's what I know about mountains. In the Bible, there's kind of two different mountains that you're going to see in Scripture. Uh, in, in the New <laughs> Testament, a lot of times the mountain will be this immovable object, this obstacle that is standing in between us and what God has for us. And if you've been in church any length of time, I would imagine you probably heard a good message or two uh, about mountain-moving faith, right? I mean, that's, that's very good. It's, it's good theology. It's solid. It's what Jesus taught. And so a lot of times, mountains can be kind of framed in that aspect, that it's something that's standing in the way. It's an immovable object that needs to be moved so that we can get to where God wants us to go. But there's this other type of mountain. Oftentimes, it's in the Old Testament. And, and this really signifies a meeting with God. It's this moment where we can actually meet with God and experience His presence. And uh, there's, there's this polarity in a really cool way where there's these two extremes. So I want to talk today about mountains. And, and I, I, more importantly, let me just give you this statement because this kind of encapsulates everything we're going to talk about today. If you go home and somebody's like, what do they talk about at church today? This is what you can tell them, okay? Uh, God wants to use mountains to move you so that he can use you to move mountains. Uh, I'll unpack that as we go today, but just to reframe that a little bit, God wants to use mountains or moments with him to move you so that you can walk out of those moments with him in his presence and you can move mountains or movable objects in your life. God wants to use mountains to move you so that he can use you to move mountains. And here's the first mountain I want to talk about today. It's the mount. Sinai, or the Bible might call it Horeb. Uh, some, some would call it in the heading in your Bible, it might say the mountain of God. And we're gonna go out of Exodus chapter three, so if you wanna turn there, uh, you can feel free to get ready to do that, or you can read along with me on the screen. Uh, but here, let me just give you some backstory, because this happens with a character in the Bible that's a very central character in the Old Testament, wrote many parts of the Old Testament, uh, incredible man of faith, incredible guy, but ha- he, he was born into a very turbulent horrible time in the nation of Israel. They're in captivity, enslaved to the Egyptians, right? And not only that, but the pharaoh is so paranoid that this group of slaves are going to overpopulate his kingdom and ultimately overthrow him that he decides to take it upon himself to do population control. And so here's his way of making sure that these people don't have an uprising or a movement that takes them out of power. He, he determines that he's going to issue an edict that takes out every single baby boy, all of the Hebrew baby boys in all of Egypt. And so can you imagine being a mother at that time? Uh, you have this brand new, beautiful baby boy. Uh, some of them, it's their first child. And, and all of a sudden, you hear there, there is this edict issued by the Pharaoh that, that you're going to have your baby slaughtered. And, and so by God's providence and grace, there's this cute little, the Bible actually calls him like handsome. They, Moses was a good looking baby. You know, there's some ugly babies and then there's like some handsome babies. Moses was, and, and every mom thinks their baby's handsome, but you're, not all your babies are handsome. I just wanted to throw, burst your bow. But, uh, but Moses, the Bible said it, so it's true. He, he was good looking. And they, this is their best plan. They take this, this precious little infant baby, they place him in a basket. Can you imagine this? Moms. And they just place him in the river. And their prayer is, God, please don't let a soldier see him. Because if they do, they're going to follow through with their command. Uh, don't let a crocodile see him. Don't let it capsize. All these different things that you can imagine are going through their mind. But, but they know they have to do something. Because they feel like there is something in, in his future that, that is nothing short of greatness. And so they place him in this basket. And by God's providence and divine direction and appointment, he washes up on the shore right by the Pharaoh's daughter who is bathing and she decides, I'm going to adopt him. And she says, I need somebody that's going to help nurse him. And, and, and uh, Moses' little, uh, his, his older sister Miriam speaks up and says, I know somebody because she had followed the basket. Brings him right back to his mommy. And she gets to nurse him all the way till four or five years of age. And so i got to imagine this. Moses is raised as a prince of Egypt, could have, you know, some commentaries will tell you he might have inherited the throne someday, because there's no specific way of knowing exactly uh, who his mother was, so we can't pinpoint which pharaoh specifically, but some would say he could have inherited the throne based on his birthright, uh, being born into that family, And, and I just, I gotta, I gotta wonder though, where there's some moments where he was living in the palace in this lavish lifestyle and has everything that he could ever want as a human being. He looks out onto the horizon and he sees all of these thousands and hundreds of thousands of slaves building this kingdom for Pharaoh. And he, and he feels a connection with them more than he feels a connection with the people in his own home. And the Bible doesn't say exactly when, but there comes a moment where he learns, I am in fact a Hebrew. And there's this day where he sees an Egyptian soldier just beating mercilessly a Hebrew slave, one of his brothers, and he feels like he needs to do something to intervene, and so he goes after him, and in trying to save him, he ends up murdering and killing the Egyptian soldier, and he does what probably most of us would do. He runs, and Moses runs, and then he runs, and he runs some more, and he finds himself in the middle of a wilderness, running from his past, probably never to return there, because if he returns, his life will never be the same. And, and he runs to the wilderness, and the Bible makes it very clear that he is there for a long time. 40 years in the wilderness, his life is on pause. There, there's nowhere to go, nothing to do. At the most, he's, he's built himself a family, and he's tending sheep, herding sheep for his father-in-law, and he's found a wife and some kids. But that's where we pick up. It's 40 years later, and I'm just wondering if there are some people in here who there are some things in your rearview mirror there are some things in your past that maybe you've done that you'd be really ashamed of. I know there are some in mine. There's some moments that you wish you could just soon forget and you've run and you've run. You've run from your relationships with people and with God. You've run from this and you run from that. And here you are and your life is just on pause and you're waiting in the wilderness. And I'm so thankful that the story doesn't end there. Let's read Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses is kind of just walking along Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, and he sees this kind of interesting sight. He sees a bush that is on fire. Now, in the wilderness and in that dry climate, uh, it's not at all uncommon that a bush might be set on fire. But here was the interesting part. It was not consumed. Uh, It didn't burn out. And I find, like... Did y'all like that last song, set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control? We sang that at camp like 8,000 times in a row, and every time I loved it. And and there's just something about, like, we were made to be, like, ablaze and on fire for God. That's, like, what he made us to do. So when we sing it, it's like something in our soul connects with that lyric, I think. And, And I find that a lot of people, oftentimes, they just get burnt out in their relationship with God. And like if I could sum it all up, and, and one of the reasons why, I would say the biggest one is that we're not burning or consumed with the presence of God. And I think that's exactly what was happening in this bush. It was on fire, uh, but it was not burning out. It was consumed with God. And so Moses naturally, th- think about this. Moses, out of anyone else in the Bible, has more encounters with God's presence in a real way than anyone else. Uh, but this is his first. There has been 40 years of silence. His relationship with God and knowing God has never been, uh, never had a connection, a connecting point. And here he is, and God finds him in the wilderness and reaches out to him. And Moses sees this burning bush. And then here's the crazy part. The bush speaks to him. I mean, hello, that's, that's not a normal day. And so he says this. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Exodus 3, 5. This is God speaking to Moses. This is the first thing he says. He could have said a lot of things, but he says this. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That's fascinating. You study all of the different interactions that Moses had with God from this point on. None look quite like this. God tells him to take off his sandals because he's standing in holy ground. In other words, take off your shoes. Now, I brought with me a pair of my shoes. These aren't shoes I'm particularly proud of. These are my lawn mowing shoes, okay? So these kind of just stay camped out in my garage until I need them in the summer. And then I put them on and I take them off. They never enter the house. You know, every shoe kind of tells a story, right? Like it's tough to lie when you got your shoes on because your shoes kind of tell you everywhere that you've been. And uh, when we were younger, me and my brother and our friends, we loved to play outside. And if it was like raining, the muddier the better, right? Anybody relate to me on this? Like, it's just fun to play outside in the rain, in the mud. And, and there was just one rule. We could have all the fun we wanted, do anything we wanted outside. But when we came inside, my mom, like every other mom on the planet, she said this one thing. Take off your shoes, Right? And so that was the rule in our house. Some of you guys had mud rooms. You take them off there. Some of you, it's like the laundry room or just the garage. And, and I just, for, for reference to the story, for a little bit of backstory, I just want you to know this about my mom. We affectionately called her in our house the Kitchen Nazi. Now that sounds really wrong and horrible, but I just want to tell you this. Like my, my mom loves a clean house, as many moms do. And every morning, y'all have smells you associate with your childhood? Um, the smell I associate most with childhood and my mom is bleach. And, and I say that sincerely, but like every morning, no lie, I would wake up early in the morning and my mom has a bucket and a scrubber and she is somewhere in our kitchen and she is bleaching something. If you stood still in, in our kitchen long enough, you would be bleached in our kitchen. Like, so we'd always call her the kitchen Nazi because Nazi it was around the time of the soup Nazi. It just worked. I don't know. Uh, but, but here's what I know about my mom. She would be like any mom, just feverishly working to keep the house clean with four kids, which is impossible, and we just had this one rule, just take your shoes off, and sometimes, just inevitably, we'd be all hyped from, from outside, and we'd get in, and we'd forget to take our shoes off, or sometimes I just thought, she won't notice, and I'd just walk in, and what I forgot was that, like, tracking behind me was everything that I stepped in, and all of a sudden, I'd hear my name screamed, and sometimes she'd even just follow the tracks right to me, and, uh, there, there were many pleasant conversations that followed, and sometimes I would have to clean up my mess. And here, here's what I know about shoes. Like, think about this. For Moses, those sandals, man, they had to represent a lot of stuff that he had walked in, a lot of stuff he had stepped in. Like, for instance, I'm just speculating, but those could have been the very sandals that he wore when he murdered the Egyptian guard. For sure, for sure they were the sandals that he wore in waiting In the wilderness when his life was on pause. And I think it's fascinating that God says, before you even step into my presence, before I I even speak to you and give you direction on what's next, I just need you to take off your shoes. Sometimes I think in in our lives, God is trying to clean house. He's trying to clean us out so he can send us out. And a lot of us, we're just not even aware that we're still wearing our shoes, tracking in all the dirt from our past. Moses could have And he did for a long time, chosen to identify with what was behind him. And I think what God was trying to say is, no, 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 you're not going to be identified by what is behind you. You're going to be identified by what I am. I love, Moses even asked this question. He said, who am I that you would send me to free the Israelites? And God's answer was, I am that I am. In other words, you're not going to be defined or identified by who you are anymore, but your identity is formed in who I am, and I always was, and I am, and I always will be, and you're going in the strength that I send you in. You got to take your shoes off, and you know, I was thinking about this at an airport. When you go through security, after they pad down every crevice of your body, uh, what is the next step in the process? You got to take off your shoes, Right? You get that long, annoying line. You take off every metal object, and you take off your shoes. And, you know, I'm sure one reason is because you could be hiding something, contraband in your shoes. But here, here's my best guess. They know that if they catch you with contraband, and you don't have your shoes on, you're not going anywhere in a hurry. Am I right? Like, they're, they're going to catch up to you eventually. And the other thing that it communicates, you know, like when you take off your shoes in somebody's house, it's like, hey, stay a while. And, and I think as we embark on this new year, Everybody has those sheets on on your seat that are about the BC fast, right? Doesn't that sound so exciting? No no eating and no, just gets me excited. And, uh, but you know what? There is something about setting aside time. Where you just say, nope, not going to listen to what my flesh and my body is screaming out for. I'm just going to, every time I want that, I'm just going to replace it for wanting God's presence and allowing God to speak to me. And can I just give you this challenge if you've never fasted before, which might be a lot of you, that's okay. Um, start small, like take a day. What could happen with one day where just with, with God's undivided attention and our undivided attention, the two of us meet and he speaks to us and something happens. Uh, I, I want to challenge you on that because I think what God was saying to Moses was like, hey, stay a while. I, I got some things I want to speak to you about. Take off those shoes. Stop thinking about your past and where you've been. I want to talk to you about where we're going. So th- that's the first mountain. It's, it's this Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And I thought this was a cool second mountain to talk about. Uh, Let's call this section king of the mountain, all right? Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid... We used to play this game, maybe in your neck of the woods, you called it King of the Hill. Some of us called it King of the Mountain. And here's what we would do. I remember we went on a Royal Rangers trip and we were out in the middle of this pond and they had this floating deck. And here was the only rule. You get up on the deck and there's probably about 10 of us. And as soon as they say go, you start trying to push each other off of this deck. And whoever was left standing last was the king of the mountain. Great violent game that, you know, sent a lot of us home with injuries. But it was great, great memories. And... There is this moment in the Bible that is exactly that. I want to tell you about it. There's this guy named Elijah. And it happens in 1 King uh, chapter 18. Elijah is a prophet, and he hears from God, and he speaks from God. But here's what's different about Elijah. He lives in a time, in a day and age, where not many people were hearing from God. Uh, it, in fact, it had been about 50 years since the last king of Israel had his heart turned to God. He was a king named Asa, who at a very young age said, I want to serve God. But along the way somewhere, they, they didn't just forsake God, they, they just started worshiping other gods too, something our culture is pretty good at. So this will apply, you know, there, there was this God named Baal, and they, they erected these statues to Baal, and they built these temples to Baal, and then there was this goddess named Asherah, and they would build these Asherah poles, and they were as high as you can see from anywhere in the city. These were things that were elevated above the one true God, and this is in the Ten Commandments, right? It's like, I will only serve the one true God. And and the punishment for that was always that God would leave them or or there, there would be punishment for their disobedience. And so that's exactly what was happening. And to top it off, they had one of the most wicked kings and queens that Israel had ever seen. It was King Ahab. And he married literally the most wicked woman that ever walked the face of the earth. According to the Bible, her name was Jezebel. And Jezebel was a bad lady. And she did not worship the one true God. And anyone that opposed her, they died. So God, I love, I love this, God tells Elijah, hey Elijah, I want you to go tell King Ahab, just kind of like this is going to be a real simple conversation, just tell him that he is sinning against me, and if he doesn't turn around and repent, that there's not going to be any rain here for a very long time. And I'm sure Elijah was like so excited to receive that assignment, right? And walks over to the palace, tells the king, and the king received it about as well as Elijah thought he would. He said, hey, not only am I not going to turn away from my sin, I'm going to murder every single priest and every single prophet that is here in Israel for speaking up against me in our gods. And so... They they began to murder them. And there was this one good servant. His name was Obadiah. He was a servant to the king, but he was secretly a servant of God. And he hid about 150 priests uh, in a cave right beneath Mount Carmel, and they never found them. And God led Elijah away to this brook, and it was this clean water. And when the whole nation had a drought for three and a half years, Elijah had water, and every day ravens would bring him food, and God provided for him. But then inevitably, uh, God wanted to give. King Ahab and the Israelites another chance because God always comes back and says, are you ready? Are you ready to come back to me? And so he appears to Elijah and Elijah probably thought, I can never show my face again because I'm gonna be murdered and killed. And, And here's what God did to kind of force him out the door. The brook dried up. I don't know about you guys, but there are some methods and some things that used to work in some moments and ways I used to connect with God. And then all of a sudden it's like, man, I, I don't know why, but it's just not working the same way. It, it's the brook drying up. And God's just trying to help you to see that there's something new. you got to step out. And so that's what Elijah did. And he goes back and he's praying, God, please open up a door. Here's how desperate Ahab in, in their kingdom was. I would imagine there was probably like a reserve for the royal house and they were even low on water at this point. It's three and a half years of no rain, not a cloud in the sky. And so Ahab is out and he is searching for himself just so he could give water to his livestock so they can have food for a little bit longer. And it's just Ahab and Obadiah his servant. And, and this is by, by God's divine appointment. Elijah runs into Obadiah first. And and he's like, hey, I gotta tell King Ahab about this. And Obadiah risks his life to even tell him that Elijah's alive because the king thinks that Elijah and all the prophets are dead, right? But they do it and they meet up with the king and here's here's the conversation that takes place before we pick up where we're gonna read. The conversation takes place and he says this, I'll tell you what, if you repent now, God will send rain. And Ahab and and Jezebel, their, their hearts were more hardened than they ever were and they said, we'll never do it. And so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll issue you a challenge. My God versus your gods. The God versus your gods little g. And and I think this is funny because what was the symptom of their culture? It was divided devotion it was yeah god I'll give you a little bit of something but like I still got these other things cooking and like I got a lot of irons in the fire and these gods they're convenient for me and I'll give them a little bit of my worship and a little bit of my attention and it might sound so pagan but I think in our culture we can do the same thing right it doesn't look as overtly ugly or sinful but it's like hey yeah yeah god you got my devotion kinda like I'm here on Sunday, right? Uh, If somebody asks me, am I a Christian, am I a believer? Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But but then with my actions and with my life and every other corner of my life, I'm worshiping and assigning value to everything but God. And here's, here's what Elijah said. He said, I'll tell you what, your God versus mine. You guys set up an altar on the top of Mount Carmel. I'll set up an altar to my God. You set up an altar to your God's. And we'll see whose God sends down fire from heaven to consume the, the altar. And I, I love what Elijah says at this point. 1 Kings 18, 21. They gather the people of Israel, and if you read some commentaries, they speculate that it was probably because they wanted to embarrass Elijah. They, they wanted to put the God of the Bible to shame. And they wanted to show the Israelites that they were the right way and that Elijah had nothing and he was powerless. So they gather him around, and here's what Elijah said. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Pretty, pretty fascinating. Not too different from what I think God is asking us in this very moment today. And so here's what happens. This is a, a really beautiful scene. It's, it's a powerful scene. It's the big moment. It's the crescendo in the story. They are on top of Mount Carmel, and there's these two altars. And Elijah says, go ahead, you go first. Uh, He wanted to be a gentleman about it. And so here's what 400, it took 400 priests of Baal. This is what they begin to do. They begin to scream and contort and cry out to this God that they made up. Baal literally means God of the sky, and they couldn't get one thing, one bit of fire to fall on their offering. And so it starts in the morning, goes all the way to noon, the Bible says. And I love Elijah, just in true style. He starts to make fun of their fake God, and he starts saying things like, oh, um, he's probably, is he late? Is, Is he running late? and um, then at one point, I can't make this up, this is in the BIBLE folks, he says, you know what, he's probably relieving himself in the restroom, just give him a few minutes, he's on a potty break, he'll be back here, we can do it then, and I'm sure they were just getting more and more frustrated and this became very elevated. At a certain point, they started cutting themselves. They thought, if the blood from these bulls is not making him uh, consume the offering, maybe our blood will. And isn't that the way idolatry and counterfeit idols work? It's like, I'll give all my attention, all my energy, and all that it leaves me is wounded and broken and damaged. When, when we encounter God and we sacrifice to God and give our lives to him, it's life-giving, right? It, it leaves us in a better place than where it found us, but it's the exact opposite. And so here Here's the culminating moment in the story. Elijah, he he wants to make sure no one could claim that this wasn't the God who created everything. And so he said, you know what? Not only am I going to have my God consume this altar with fire, I'm going to douse it with water first. And so he says, bring out some water. And so I just can imagine there's some big old things of water and they're dumping it over. And they said, he tells them to do it not twice, but three times to the point where there is water all around the trench of the altar. It's in pools. And then he prays this really simple but powerful prayer. He says, God, the God of all heaven, Jehovah, consume this offering, And, and he did. And the fire came down in a pillar and consumed not only the offering, but the Bible tells us it licked up every bit of water that was around the altar. And here's the result. Every single one of the people in Israel said, he is the one true God. The king said, he is the one true God. And every one of those priests of Baal, they were put to death. And, and I think, man, there, there is just something about saying, you know what, God, I, I'm going to choose today. I, I can't follow this way in that, like, the, as for me in my house, in, in my life, we're going to follow and serve the Lord. No more divided devotion. I, I'm not going to kill myself trying to go after all these other things that only leave me empty and broken and wounded. I'm going to go after you. Now, here's, here's what I, I love. Let's talk about this other type of mountain because it's in the Bible. It's Jesus talking to us. Remember, God wants to use mountains to move you so that he can use you to move mountains. Anybody have some mountains in here? Like, like if you prayed today and you knew it would work, you'd be like praying pretty fervently because you're like, I, I need this out of the way. It's standing in my way of what God has for me. Jesus had something to say about it. Let's, let's read this together. Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So you you just got to tell it where to go, right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I would imagine there's some some really sanctified, saved people in the house. But then, like, during the Christmas holiday rush, if you got into the parking lot at the mall and somebody cuts you off, you might have had a temptation. I'm not saying you did, but you might have had a temptation to tell them where to go. Am I right? Is there anybody in the house just being real with you? That, that's all we're doing, right? It's with confidence saying, you, go into the sea. That's what Jesus says. But then there's the second part. Mark 11:24. 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So, A great thing to couple with fasting would be to pray, right? Uh, To to begin to have this faithful prayer where you're like, man, I'm going to choose to believe in a ridiculous way that if God said it, then I can have it. And if he wants me to pray and that's how he's unleashed to move in the earth, I'm going to take him at his word and do it. But there's this caveat, this last little part that's on the verse. Let's read this together. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone... Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, I don't think it's an accident that this was in the same verse and in the same conversation. I don't know about you, but for me, the thing that challenges me the most, probably the biggest thing that stands in the way of me having faith and confidence before God to move mountains, uh, the unforgiveness in my heart towards people who have wronged me, uh, the moments in my life where I have been injured, wounded, uh gossiped about, lied about, whatever it might be, disappointed. Those are the moments that tend to linger in my relationship with God. And and I thought this would help. We're talking about mountains. I I love how this all flows together. Psalm 36.6. This is talking about God's character. We might have some issues with other people's character in our life, but it's good to know that God's character is like this. Let's read this together. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice, like the great deep. I love the message translation. God's love is meteoric, his loyalty, astronomic, his purpose, titanic, his verdicts, oceanic. Yet in his largeness, listen to this nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. You know what's so comforting to know? That maybe even people that we know deserve justice and we know have wronged us and hurt us and wounded us and we wish we could make it all happen ourselves, the judging part, to rest in the fact that God's righteousness is like a high mountain that he sees from this vantage point, uh, that his justice is so deep that one day they will account for it. But you know what's so cool? If you start to just ask God for his heart and ask God to forgive them, you start praying like Jesus prayers and Stephen prayers. You remember what they said? God, just forgive them because I don't even think they know what they're doing. And all of a sudden, you just start getting in God's vein of thinking, and you start seeing things from His vantage point, so much higher than our thoughts, so much better than our ways, and it changes everything. That's what I believe is the key to moving mountains. When we can get into God's presence and take our shoes off, and then we can go out from God's presence, and we can watch what God begins to do. Now, I I think we're we're coming to a close here. Um, Here's what I've noticed. When we get into God's presence, something very similar can happen to us that happened to Moses. There's this moment where Moses comes down off of the mountain, and we'll, we'll just read it together. This is fascinating. Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying the two tablets of the testimony, he didn't know that the skin of his face glowed because he had been speaking with God. Can you imagine this? Like he had been in God's presence and he literally was glowing with God's presence. Uh, I thought this was interesting, though. Aaron, his brother, and all the Israelites saw Moses, saw his radiant face, and held back, afraid to get close to him. Now, I'll just make this statement, and, and I'll unpack it. Glow is for show, and we glow so we can go. God wants us in his presence to have such a real encounter with him that it just kind of rubs off on us and when we come down from the mountain and we go back to earth and how many you know there's always a back to earth right Uh, when Moses came back to earth what was waiting for him all the people of Israel had turned away from God right there are gonna be some people that aren't willing to go up the mountain with you and when you come back down they're gonna be trying to talk you out of doing what God told you to do right but glow is for show and glow is so we can go God called us all to go into the world tell the good news to people. and I think it's fascinating, though. He had to cover his face. Did you know that? It, it, was so, it was so intense that they would actually put a veil, almost like on wedding day, they would put a veil over Moses' face because it was so intense. I've noticed this. The times where I've been effective in reaching people who are living in darkness is not the moments where I've pointed out all their sin, pointed out all the ways that they've missed it and all the ways that they're messing up and far from God. It was the moments when I pointed out the better way. Like if I had a flashlight and I wanted to illuminate something on this stage for you in the audience, what I wouldn't do is take the flashlight and shine it in your eyes, right? What would I do? I would take that flashlight and I would shine it to the one thing I wanted you to see. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, right? So he's not just illuminating all the things that are wrong about us. He convicts us and does that quite well. But then I love this about God. He points us to where we're supposed to go, where we're going so that we can grow in God and ultimately glow in God, right? And, and so that's, that's important. And here's the last thing that I'm gonna close with. This is a cool moment. Like, I laughed when I read this because I think Jesus has a sense of humor. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these commercials. Um, they, they're real popular around football time. Uh, it's, it's all these guys, and they have all these superstitions about what they need to do so their team can win. Like, because the Browns, when they beat the Steelers later today, there will be a lot of guys around here that, that they, they, can, they will be convinced that they had something to do with it. I have this weird thing where if I didn't watch the game, I feel like I was personally responsible that my team lost. I don't know what that is. But now, here's the slogan. They say, hey, it's only weird if it doesn't work, Right? Like, you can do anything if it works. And I think Jesus had some cool moments like that. Now, there, there was this group of people, they were really excited to watch this premiere of Star Wars, The Revenge of the Sith. This is years ago. And they lined up, I'm not kidding you, this is a real thing that happened, seven weeks ahead of time to watch this ridiculous movie that was probably not even that good, okay? I'm an original Star Wars guy. So anyways, they lined up seven weeks in. For some reason, no one ever bothered to tell them that this was not the right theater that was even playing the movie. And so can you just picture this in your mind? A bunch of people dressed up like Darth Vader and Darth Maul and all the characters, seven weeks, get to the end of the seven weeks, and and no one bothered to tell them. Or if they did, they didn't believe them. They thought they were trying to chase them off the trail. That's a weird thing that didn't work. Jesus did some weird things at work. Like this one time, remember, Jesus grabbed some, some mud, some dirt, and he spit in it. And then he put it on the eyes of a blind man. And that's a little bit weird. It's like, Jesus, couldn't you like, could you just lay your normal hands? I saw down the street, you had just put your normal hands on people, but you spit on this one. But I bet any money that the guy didn't complain because he walked away and he could see, right? It's only weird if it doesn't work. And uh, there's this moment in the Bible that I think is hilarious. Mark 11, 1. Now, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, just wanted you to see the continuity, this is all happening around mountains here, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, this is just funny, read between the lines here, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, I love this part, it's it's just stated simply with a period at the end, untie it and bring it here. And so what I think reading between the lines, what Jesus has just commanded them to do is like grand theft donkey, right? Like, I mean, he is, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he had an arrangement worked out with somebody. I'm not sure, but he just told him to take somebody's colt, you know, their animal, and bring it to him. Verse 3 gets even better. If anyone asks you, because he figured somebody's going to ask him, why are you doing this? Just say, Don't worry, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And I I would say that's like the modern day equivalent to someone driving off of the lot with a brand new car, and if somebody tries to stop him, don't worry about it, it's for Jesus, I'll bring it right back. You know, it's just not totally believable. But I I was just thinking back, um, my senior year in high school, there was this coveted position among many of us in our class, and it was, are you ready for this, the office aid. Do I have any former office aides in the house, you were, okay, yeah, yeah, it's a very uh, storied society, secret society, if you will, There are a lot of things go on in the office aid culture, I just can't take the time to explain, I'm just kidding, Um, but uh, here's one of the cool advantages of it, I had it seventh period, so we had these cool little office aid badges, just you know, just like your police badge, you just show that, and it's the sign of authority, back down, you know, and so every day, we'd made our rounds, and we'd walk around, you know, just strut to every, every class, and just, you know, wave our badges around, and grab their attendance sheet, and uh, every now and then, every now and then, there would just be a teacher that would come a little bit out of line, and she'd question me, she'd be like, what are you doing in the hallway, and all I had to do was just say, take a look at that, office aid, back off, I would never say that, I was very respectful, but, uh, There was just something cool about that. It was just kind of like, for that period, it was like, hey, listen, don't worry, because the teacher told me to. Like, I'm walking the halls because the teacher told me to. And there's this moment at the end of this story. Listen to this. Verse 4. So they are obeying Jesus. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, inevitably, here's what happened. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And I can just promise you as we finish here today, there will be some things that Jesus told you to do. Maybe some weird things. Some things that are countercultural. Things that other people, maybe even in other churches or religious circumstances, just aren't doing. And they're going to ask you, well, What are you doing? What are you doing reading your Bible? Jesus told me to. What are you doing in this relationship? With, with these people, you used to hang with us, you used to party here. Why, why aren't you doing it? It's like, aren't you bored? No, 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 you don't understand. Like, Jesus told me to, and because Jesus told me to, this is the most fulfilling, satisfying thing I've ever done. What are you doing at that church that talks about this, and what are you doing reading your Bible every day, and what are you doing sounding and looking like this? You don't get it. Jesus told me to, and it's all I need to know, because Jesus told me to, and it's only weird if it doesn't work. And I'm just wondering if there are some people here this morning, if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes. Just have a moment between us and God. I'm wondering if there are some people here that just as I've been speaking over the last few minutes, God's just been showing you some shoes to take off. There's some areas in your life that have some divided devotion. Sure, you love God. We all do. I've been here before. It's just like there's something about my life that's not all pointing to Jesus. Some of it just looks and sounds weird in our culture, but we don't look any different, so we're not making a difference, and God's just beginning to say, hey, it starts with taking off your shoes, getting into my presence, undividing your divided devotion, giving God everything, and just saying, hey, Jesus told me to, and that's all I need to hear. So if I can just pray with you, I just want you to picture, what's that one thing? What are those two things? What are the things God right now is just saying, just give it to me. Just take off those shoes. I don't know what they are, but I can imagine God's shown you pretty clearly by now. Can you just give this to God with me as I pray with you? Dear God, I just thank you so much for every person that's here today. I I know it's not by accident. It's not a mistake. There's something you want to do in 2014 that you couldn't do in 2013 until they surrendered and until we took our shoes off, until we gave you something to work with. And so I pray that right now, just as every person has their moment with you, as they surrender that thing to you, whatever it is, as they give you everything, that you would set a fire inside of us that we can't contain and we can't control it because we really do just want more of you. That's, that's the great reward. I just pray that you would reward them for it and bless them for it and give them the strength to do it. Give them people to walk alongside of them. I thank you this year will be different than any other year before. In Jesus' name. With everyone's head still bowed eyes still closed, just for one more minute. We love to end the service this way here at Believer's Church because it's so important. You know, if if you were kind of connecting with the message and it made a little bit of sense, but you don't feel like you have a legitimate, real connection with God, I just want to talk to you about him for a second. You know, in our culture, we're familiar with Jesus, but a lot of us, we haven't made it real with Jesus. Uh, We haven't made a real sincere connection with him. He's a religious figure or a prophet. or You know, sometimes in our culture, people will say, well, there's all different ways to God, just so you get there ultimately. And Jesus made a pretty defiant statement uh, in, in defiance of what our culture tells us every day. Jesus said, no, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father in heaven except through me. So he made it very clear that the cross is a bridge and it's a bridge to cross. Like we've gotta get across that thing in our life and it all runs through the sacrifice Jesus made for us. He lived a perfect life because he knew we couldn't. We, We always say this at Believer's Church, there's no perfect people allowed. God loves you right where you are, but he loves you way too much to let you just stay there, stay paused, he wants you to move forward. And today I want to give you the opportunity to do that. If you've never made it real with God, if you've never said, God, I acknowledge that you are the one who created me and I acknowledge Jesus is the one who came to the earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross to save me for my sins because I couldn't. And I was hopelessly a wreck and in need of a savior. If that's you, Romans ten nine and 10 tells us all we have to do is believe in our heart Say with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we'll be saved. We're we're saved from an eternity separated from God in a place called hell, and and we're enabled to have an eternity spent with God in a place called heaven. So I want to lead you in a prayer. There's tons of people who have done it already. If that's you and you want to pray that prayer, pray it with all of your heart. Let's repeat this after me. Say, "Dear God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what He did for me on the cross." I'm sorry for anything I've done to separate me from you. I want to know you the way you created me to. Have your way in my life. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Connecting Place podcast. For more information about Believer's Church, visit believers.cc.